When you're young, or when we were young, before the internet existed, like if you had to do a book project in school, what did you have to do? You had to get like an encyclopedia, right? And if you didn't own one, you had to go to the public library, et cetera, et cetera. We've essentially made the trade in our modern model that says, hey, for your attention, or for my attention, like I get this quote unquote free stuff, but it's almost like it's the, the costs are hidden. They're not right in front of us like a subscription model where I say, okay, I'm going to pay $10 a month and get access to Netflix or whatever have you. It's an even exchange. Here, we're not exchanging money. We're exchanging attention. And I think because of it's not something tangible, we often discount that. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. Brad, what's going on, my man? You know, Steve, I had a training PR at the gym this morning in my back squat, only seven weeks after switching from a high bar to a low bar back squat. Um, I'm really grooving in. My ankles are no longer a limiting factor, which is nice. I had Kylie there to spot me. She's an animal. And I hit uh, hit a 330-pound rep at like RPE 8. So that used to be a big, scary weight. And now it's just kind of like, all right, that's like a training wrap. So uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good today. My legs are a bit tired, but uh, yeah, it's always, can't complain on a PR day, Steve. You know, How about you? I'm doing great. I don't have any PR days anymore. So I just enjoy my, my seven mile run at like 7.30 pace through the woods, just, you know, enjoying the scenery. So... We're chasing yeah, different. You know, things. my retirement, my retirement date is well, my tentative retirement date. We'll see if I pull a Tom Brady. Is uh, next July, so not this July, but like 15 months from now, is uh, is when I plan on joining Steve and releasing from performance oriented fitness goals. But until then, since I wasn't a childhood prodigy, I feel like I uh, I can still get a little bit better. You know, you never know. Maybe uh, my competitiveness will kick up once I get in the master stage or, you know, maybe I'll go off the rails and look at all the Strava segments and just blow them out of the water before I retire. So not not complaining. If you compete, go for it. But, you know, it's it's uh, make sure your fitness goals are in align with your uh, what you're trying to do with them. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, with that out of the way, um, just a quick reminder to, to everyone, we are 100%. That's so funny. With that out of the way, let me give you the backstory. So if you're new to this podcast and you enjoyed the little banter, thank you. If you're not new to this podcast, you'll, you'll know that Steve always asks me how I'm doing. And I always say, oh, I'm doing all right. And today's topic, and a couple people shot us notes and said, I'm going to hope for the day that Brad actually answers Steve when Steve asks Brad how he's doing. So I've been working on giving answers. So we, we, we appreciate your feedback, members of, uh, of the Growth Equation Podcast community. And um, if you want to join the Growth Equation Podcast community, well, the best way to do that is to sign up for our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. As I was saying, we're 100% independent, member-supported. We do not take sponsorships or advertisement, and we're going to go deep in this episode as to why. And um, your support allows us to hire a wonderful sound editor and um, some producing value and just like really take this to a level that is much better than it was before. So if you want to support the show, hit us up on Patreon for as little as the price of a, not even a grande these days. What's the one? A, a, not a venti, the small one, a tall. For as oh. little as the price of a tall latte, you get exclusive access to all sorts of neat things, including signed copies of our new books, discounted Growth EQ merch, a monthly book club that we do live on Zoom, a mastermind group, and so much more. So head on over to www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. 
And the other way to support the show and to really go deep on the principles of sustainable excellence and peak performance and toughness that we so often talk about, buy our books. Our most recent ones, The Practice of Groundedness and Do Hard Things, they've sold over 200,000 copies. They've been translated into more than 15 languages. Um, you know, at this point, the royalties from those books for us are really small. So we're just about getting them out into the hands of readers because we think that they are super valuable and can help you. So if you dig what we do here on the podcast, if you dig our newsletter, if you dig the essays that we write and you haven't read our books, pick up a copy. If you are more of an audio learner and you prefer listening to books, they're available on Audible, on Libro. They're even available on CD. I don't think they're available on record, but you get the point. You can pretty much get our books in any language, any format that you wish. So um, please check those out. All right. With that advertisement done, <laughs> let's get into today's topic, which is the attention economy and which we'll talk about advertisements. And, you know, I, I'm going to say this and then I'll let you set the stage for that is. So uh, for listeners, hopefully, you know, my wife and I are, are uh, my wife is pregnant. We're having our first kid. We're doing the, the, the hey, we've got to panic and find all the plastic junk that goes along with having a kid. So we're searching online and, um, you know, to fill out our, our baby shower registry and our needs and all that stuff. And now whenever I go online, I am inundated with advertisements for random baby stuff. Yeah, the baby industrial complex has your it, IP address. It it I am I am now targeted with everything from you know cribs and strollers to breast pumps to just anything in the baby area that has taken over my phone and you know internet advertisement. And it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy how how we do that. So we're going to set the stage with that's where we are in advertisement. And let's dive into the attention economy. All right. So broadly defined, the attention economy is the massive amount of money that goes into capturing our attention so that people can then monetize that attention for more than their investment. So the investment might be hey, we'll pay Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal X amount of dollars to run this ad on their website or in the feed. And as a result, we think that we'll return X plus one selling whatever product or service is in the ad. And we're going to include this in the show notes and in our newsletter in the, the What's Interesting section. But we're, we're piggybacking off of a wonderful conversation um, that Ezra Klein had with the author of a book called Subprime Attention. And I highly recommend everyone listen to that. They go deep into how we got to where we are. We're going to pick up the ball where they left off and talk about the implications. But let me just give, I don't know, a minute or two's worth of context here. So people think about Google as a search company. But what Google really is, is an advertising company. So Google was the first major player to set up a market where agencies could bid as your screen is loading on the ability to show you an ad. So let's make this real. I go to www.theatlantic.com to read Derek Thompson's latest column. In the time it takes that website to load, algorithms are running in the back end. Going to Vuori, my favorite t-shirt company. Shinola, the kind of watch I have. The NBA.com, because I've been watching a ton of basketball. Blue Buffalo dog food. And while my website is loading, an algorithm from those companies or their agencies are bidding. I'll pay half a cent. I'll pay one-tenth of a cent. I'll pay two cents for you to run a banner ad on Derek Thompson's story once Brad is on there. This is happening in real time, anytime you load up a website that has any sort of advertisement on it, which is to say just about all websites. It is slightly slower clip. Anytime you watch the news on television, between daily, weekly, and monthly, agencies are bidding for the commercials that they're going to show you during that news show. Podcasts, unlike ours, 
99.99% of podcasts that have over 5,000 listeners are advertisement supported. What does that look like? It looks like you send your podcast out to an agency and that agency then has advertisers bid on you reading off your supplement, your vitamin water, your mattress, your lead-free deodorant, whatever it is. Basically, the entire information economy, all the places we go to get information today, the internet, our televisions and the news, the radio and podcast are funded by some variety of supplement, mattress, watch, perfume, you name it, consumer products and goods. Full stop. The only exception here is books. It's the only place left where you can go get information where you're not going to be bombarded with ads. This is a relatively new phenomenon, right? Marketing has always been a thing, but the intensity and the data-driven ability for advertisers to bid on your attention is something that is brand new in the last two decades. And the last thing I'll say to set the stage Ezra Klein's point, not mine, but I'm going to repeat it here in case you don't go back and listen to that podcast. One of his biggest fears about artificial intelligence isn't that it's going to turn against humanity and take over the world, but it's going to make this advertising system a million times more powerful because it will be able to scan the entire internet and all of your browsing history and everything and then predict what you're going to do next based on all of this data to then serve you the perfect ad. So our biggest problems as individuals, our mental health, our physical health, our intellectual health, our financial planning, they require deep uninterrupted thought to work on. Our biggest societal problems, gun violence, climate change, geopolitical competition and threat, racism. They too require undivided attention and deep focus to work on. Yet the entire economy runs on bidding to interrupt our deep focus and attention. That's where we are today. With that, Steve, solve our problems. All right, Brad, you just painted a a wonderful picture of our modern world and the future of where we're going. Um, way to contribute to the existential threat and dread that people are feeling. No, uh, so, so. But I don't think it's all bad. So, so you said that. So let me respond real quick. You know, there's a counterpoint to be made, which is the alternative model where you pay people for, or where, where, where like you have to pay for services and there are no ads. Then only a proportion of the population that can pay get something. It's like the Substack model, right? Like you sign up for my newsletter. There's no ads. You get it. We kind of do that. Our book sales subsidize everything else we do, as does our Patreon group. So what advertising does is it allows everyone access to free information, which is pretty good, I think. So that's a benefit. And then other people say, well, these algorithms are great because I'd rather at least get ads for things that I might be interested in than just random nonsense. Now, To me, those two benefits pale in comparison to the enormous cost on our attention. But just because you said that, I guess, you know, I want to be balanced and at least discuss those two benefits of this model. Yeah, I think the actual, the freedom of information is actually kind of an important one. Um, Because it... it is important. It does level the playing field. I mean, I remember, I'm going way back, but when you're young or when we were young, like maybe very young, before the internet existed, like if you had to do a book project in school, what did you have to do? You had to get like an encyclopedia, right? And if you didn't own one, you had to go to the public library, et cetera, et cetera. And that creates a, a an information kind of... Um, silo to a degree, depending on your finances, which I think is kind of bad. But there's there's probably an in-between here that that is the solution. I think your greater point is that we've traded, we've essentially made the trade in our modern model that says, hey, for your attention or for my attention, 
like I get this quote unquote free stuff, but it's almost like it's the, the costs are hidden. They're not right in front of us like a subscription model where I say, okay, I'm going to pay $10 a month and get access to Netflix or whatever have you. It's the even exchange. Here, we're not exchanging money. We're exchanging attention. And I think because of it's not something tangible, we often discount that. And that discount is what leads to kind of the poor outcomes or the underreaction to things. So for example, the mental health crisis in teens and um, younger kids is something that we probably should have seen coming given the attention grasping qualities that we all know of our phones and social media and all that stuff. But we didn't. We didn't do anything about it. We didn't change how or anything about it. We didn't regulate it at all. Why not? Because the cost is is hidden, right? And and I compare this to let's compare this to something else from Brad and I's childhood. Remember the freak out on on video games and violence? Oh yeah. Right? You know, like our parents freaked out, video game violence is gonna, you know, destroy the world. I remember playing Mortal Kombat and on the Sega Genesis, they had like little pixels of blood and then the Super Nintendo, they didn't. And that was a big controversy, right? Um, And our parents' generation thought that violence in video games was going to destroy us. And it turns out that it doesn't really make that big of a difference on on research. Um, But why did we focus on that? Because it was tangible in front of us where it was like, oh my gosh, these kids are playing video games where someone's you know head explodes or they shoot someone tangible. You can see it. I think with the the social media aspect, the attention grasping, we don't see it, so it doesn't have that salient kind of like effect that grasps us away. And that is partially, I think, what leads to the situation we're in, which is you rightly pointed out, it's not just the tension of teens going down and as we talked about, or their their health going down. I think it's also adults as we look at our productivity, our well-being, our sense of connection and community all kind of plummeting, even burnout to a degree. It's because we spend way too much time having our attention dragged over here almost subconsciously where we don't even like, you know, it's not in front of us. We don't grasp it. We just kind of keep letting it get dragged away. So I want to key in on dragged over here because I think it's important to define over here. And there is an enormous body of scientific literature that shows that we humans have what psychologists call a negativity bias. So we will very quickly look and spend time gazing or thinking about or listening to things that are negative. Now this evolved for very good reason. You need to find the snake, you need to find the predator and pay attention to it so it doesn't kill you. The Everyday example that most can relate to is the gawker effect in traffic. So there's a traffic accident and everybody slows down and the newscaster says it's a gawker jam. Well, what does that mean? It means everyone slowed down so they can look at the car accident. That is just a visceral innate pull to pay attention to scary, risky things in in our environments, period. Now, To a large extent, we have monetized the gawker effect. If I am selling attention on my platform, and I know that people are going to spend more time staring at a massive car pile up that's gruesome and and, and just terrible than at anything else, well, what am I going to gear my my content towards? A massive, gruesome pile up. So particularly when we talk about kids, I was just having this conversation earlier today with my dear friend, Brooke. Is our age, Steve. So we are largely of like the 9-11 generation. 
And I don't know about you, but when I see a plane flying lower than I'd expect it to, I still have like a little jolt in my stomach, like shit, that's not good. That traces itself back to 9-11, right? I think everyone in our generation, most people in our generation at least has, has some of that residue. And now there was the news when we were growing up, right? So we could watch about 9-11 on the news every night, but it wasn't on our phones, and there were only three or four big news stations where advertisers can't bid in real time. Imagine if 9-11 would have happened today, where advertisers are bidding on our attention for social media, major news sources in real time to cover that. It would just be an escalation of awfulness. Nonstop. Now, I'm not suggesting that we bury our head in the sands, but our younger generation is basically being fed tribalism, despair, antagonistic content, anything that will capture one's attention. Or on the flip side, bodies that are so beautiful that they can't possibly be real, so you stop to pay more attention to them. And there's a, there's a very strong financial incentive for this. So to me, you have to ask, all right, if the incentive is to, if what's going to support your mission is advertising or what's going to support your content is advertising and advertisers pay more for eyeballs and we have a propensity towards negativity, well, then what's going to get shown to make these models profitable? It's negativity. I mean, and, and, and I think it's real quick. I think it's the worst on the internet because they're literally, right? There's these attention markets that are bidding in real time. To, to show us ads, but even on the freaking so-called news, like what do you think the clowns yelling at each other for so-called like both sides analysis is? It's just, it, it's a, it, they're creating a car crash for us to look at. So I want to add some science to this because this is what I do. Um, one of the most interesting studies that I've seen actually uh, captures this. So, you remember the, the the Boston Marathon bombing? I think it was like 2013, 14, something like that. So yeah. maybe maybe nine, 10 years ago. So more recent than 9-11, right? In the internet age, but at the very, what I would say at the beginning of the kind of social media outbreak, right? 2013 isn't as crazy as now. There was a study that found that they, they compared stress levels, perceived stress and anxiety of a group of individuals who were either at the marathon when the bombing occurred or were directly connected in some way, meaning they had some family or friend like there and were worried about someone real, right? They compared the stress levels in the days after of those people directly connected Versus those who were outside of Boston, had no family or friend connection, and who had watched coverage of it or seen coverage online. And what was fascinating is once you got above, I think it was about five-ish hours a day of consuming coverage, the stress and anxiety levels were higher in those watching the coverage than those who were directly either there or impacted by the bombing itself. And that's such a striking like statistic to me. And people might say, well, five hours is a lot, but not really if you think about TV coverage, social media going through it at this time. At this time, there was a big like Reddit search for these the bombers, all that stuff. If you add that up in a day, it's not crazy hard to get to five plus hours of consuming coverage. And it's just mind-blowing to me that if you are far away and you consume consume five-plus hours approximately, your stress and anxiety levels, you felt that more stress than someone directly there. And I think what we're seeing now is thanks to social media, this attention economy, and directed kind of advertising, which incentivizes the car wreck phenomenon, car crash phenomenon, is, is it any wonder we have like increase, and if you look at the data, it shows this, increased levels of anxiety, you know, throughout the country, throughout the world. And I think we're not paying attention to that enough. 
And I think that's what you're, you're, you're getting at is like, we know this stuff contributes to it. We know it contributes to this existential kind of dread, puts us in what I'd call kind of, you know, that survival mode where you're just almost hypersensitive to the threats of the world because you think the threats are. And actually, you know, I'm going to give an example that's a little controversial. Um, I remember posting something the other day on Instagram, speaking of attention, but I posted something on Instagram that essentially said, you know, hey, get outside for your runs. Don't just get stuck on the treadmill. Something to this just. And I got a little pushback from some people saying like, hey, like this might be, you know, something that a, a, a male, white male could do. But if you're a female, like you, you got to be aware. And I totally agree. You have to be aware. But there was some pushback on like, you can't even go outside to exercise and run. And that might be true again in some areas. But I think that that kind of hyper fear also has a source in what, um, I forget the researcher, but he termed it mean world syndrome, which essentially is if all we can, and this was in the 70s that he, he termed this research, but if we consume a lot of news that puts out threatening, dangerous things, it shifts our perspective and our expectations and our brain's predictions to think that the world is more dangerous than it actually is. And we interpret everything as local. So if I hear about, I don't know, someone getting stabbed in uh, New York City, you know, in days gone by, I would never hear about that. I would only hear probably about things that happened in my local community. But now when I interpret, interpret, oh, someone got stabbed in New York City as my environment is dangerous. And because we live in a very large world, someone is going to get stabbed, shot, stolen, abducted, etc. Unfortunately, you know, very frequently because of the size of the country. So it misaligns our kind of projection or prediction of how dangerous or threatening the world is. And I think with attention economy, social media, etc., all that does is amplifies it, meaning we're incredibly hypersensitive to threats. Yeah, and I think two things can be true at once, and, and I know that you agree, which is, yeah, like there can be increased risk to running outside, but there's also a lot of increased benefit to running outside. And then it becomes a, a cost-benefit thing. I mean, you could get hit by a random lightning strike or a pebble from a car could shoot you and get you in the eye while you're running on the sidewalk. Now, depending on what area you live in, those things might be as likely as getting stabbed. They might be more likely. They might be less likely. Depending on the color of your skin, those things might be more likely, less likely. And we're not saying like to dismiss those, but I think to Steve's point, what happens is these risks get like the, the primacy that they take in our minds gets so inflated but then we make decisions based on the risk that we can see, not on the risk that we can't see, which is time in nature is generally better than time staring at a wall on a treadmill. The other thing I'll add, because we've really been talking a lot about like this, this negativity bias and the, the narrowing of our world, is imagine if right now we just cut out to say, hey, listener, do you struggle with your sleep? Well, we've got the fix for you. For listeners of the Growth Equation podcast, use the code BRADGETSCOLD to take a cold plunge, an XYZ plunge tube, and then head over to XYZ Mattress Company, where our mattresses are clinically proven to give you better sleep. What does it do? It cheapens this entire conversation, right? You, you would probably sit there and kind of laugh and be like, are you kidding? And I think that's the other thing that advertising does. So even if you're aware of all these biases and you stick to your guns, I think no one does this better than Ezra Klein over at the New York Times or Derek Thompson on the Ringer Podcast Network. And yet I still can't help but cringe. And I, and I know both these guys and I love them. I listen to their podcast on these topics and then it cuts out to like, you know, this is like, do you want to smell like a woman? You need Chanel perfume. Or in Derek Thompson's case, like some some cheese company that I seriously thought was at first a parody. 
And it's like, it cheapens the seriousness of what we're talking about here. So all, all roads here go back to the, the 1970s, 1980s, even really even 1960s media theorists, Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman, who argued that basically the medium is the message. And if we're on a medium that's interrupting serious topics by silly ads, then the message is that no topic's too serious to be taken you know, seriously without being interrupted. And in the case of Neil Postman, he just simply said, we're amusing ourselves to death. And he basically argued we'll never be able to do anything of substance or solve any challenging problem because we are training our brains to just bounce from one thing to the next and particularly from something serious to not. He noted this first happened on cable news with the weather where you would hear about some terrible murder or some tragedy and then it would bounce to the weatherman wearing a clown suit because it's like, you know, the first day of winter and Johnny looks like a clown because winter's funny. And Neil Postman observed this and said, we're fucked. And if Neil Postman was alive today, I think he would really think that we're fucked. So, you know, the only thing I'd add there is the way I like to conceptualize this is the brain is predictive, right? So it's trying to predict what's what's what it should prepare for and how it should interpret things. How does it do that? context, information streams, both internal and external and past experience. So what we're getting at here is if our prediction is based on faulty bad data, right? Increased threats everywhere, all we see is car wrecks, etc. Then of course our brain's going to think, oh, the world is dangerous and threatening. Or on the flip side, Brad's point there is if we jump from, you know, horrific death to clown costume, our brain, what's the message there that it is predicting? It's kind of saying, oh, this isn't as serious or this is like you can't engage with depth on that. And that's kind of, you know, if I was to sum this up on the attention economy stuff is it's that it leads to really bad data in, which leads to really bad predictions out. Yeah, and it cheapens anything that should be serious. This is why... I got so pissed off at Lex Friedman and he canceled me on the internet because I was just riding him so hard for having Kanye on. And people said, well, he pushed Kanye really hard on his anti-Semitic remarks about Holocaust denial and, you know, Jews behind Planned Parenthood killing babies. And I remember thinking he did that, but then he didn't end the conversation. And the next segment was literally what it's like to live in the Kardashian family. And to me, that is more harmful than the shit that Kanye said himself because it just makes it all cheap entertainment. And if we can't take anything seriously, then to quote Neil Postman, we're fucked. (laughs) All right, Brad. Well, I think the listeners have got that message that we're kind of screwed. What's the hopeful message? Yeah, so 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 what's the what's the hopefulness? Also, I'm swearing real quick. Um, because we've had to have this conversation, I swear too much, and it's becoming very salient because Theo, my five-year-old son, is collecting a whole lot of quarters every time I swear. So we've shifted from like a abstinence to a harm reduction strategy. So now, and I and this is truly what I believe, it's okay to swear as long as you're not swearing at someone. So there's a difference between like were, insert word, versus insert word you. So just a plug for the other adult parents, and Steve, you don't swear as much as me, your kid will just run around being like, and all that good stuff, and all that good stuff. But for those of you that struggle with swearing, I think um, with kids, you know, let's shift the conversation, right? Like there's a time and a place to add certain uh, texture to conversations where the appropriate word is an F-bomb, but that F-bomb should not be directed at other people. So just wanted to, uh, to make a plug there for my, uh, my, my swearing here. Now, where's the hope in all this, Steve? I think maybe the hope is just that we're having this conversation and more people are becoming aware that this is happening. It's still a pretty new technology and most new technologies 
are disruptive often in negative ways before we kind of figure out how they're being disruptive and do something about them. Um, I think that the challenge would be to act on it faster, you know? So a, 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 a not perfect analogy, but one worth mentioning is cigarettes. So cigarettes came online and you can even consider cigarettes as a new technology, right? Like that helps people feel stimulated and like motivated and really good. Um, they help a large subset of the population with restlessness and with weight loss. So when cigarettes first came online, like pretty much everyone was smoking cigarettes and they only saw the benefits. And then over time we saw cost and cost and cost. And what did the cigarette companies do? They did exactly what attention economy companies are doing, which is they said, Oh, but you know, you can't prove it. Or, well, maybe it's something else. Or, well, what about all these benefits? And I'd have to go back to, you know, my public health days to look at the, 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 the timeline, but it was like a solid, I don't know, 40 years before the Surgeon General's morning came out, maybe even, maybe even more and millions and millions and millions of preventable deaths and in, in, in early lives lost. So if we think of attention economy in a similar vein, that it's a technology that we're only seeing the benefits of, and we're just starting to realize its costs. I think the question is, how can we come up with a set of regulations and frameworks for how we think about it that helps to minimize those costs as fast as we can? Um, to me, that's where the hope is. And just like, especially with this, like awareness is a really powerful drug. Because like, if you know that this is going on, when Ezra Klein or Derek Thompson switches to whatever, you know, ad that has been sold to them that they're, they have to read to support their podcast, I can kind of laugh and be like, you know, this is silly. And then refocus on the serious conversation only because I'm aware that all this is happening. I think the real danger is when we just kind of go on autopilot and we just assume that like, this is the natural order of the universe. Um, yeah. So I think like, to me, that's the hope. Uh, and I don't know like what the, what the ultimate, what the ultimate answer is other than, um, you know, I think that we, we, we here try to be nuanced. So we're not going to like take a huge system as capitalism and say good or bad for or against. I think what we can say is this is definitely a negative byproduct or externality of like a profit driven capitalist system, which is you find something that works and you exploit and exploit and exploit. And if your metric is dollars, you're looking great. But if your metric is democracy or ability to solve thorny problems or mental health, you're not looking so good. And I think attention has been great for dollars. Attention economics has been great for dollars, but I think it, 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 it you know, correlation is not causation, but it has very closely correlated with, the decline of democracy is like a, an institution in, in, in America and the Western world as a whole, as well as mental health. You know, here I'm always, those are some great points. And I think the cigarette uh, analogy is spot on. And I'm all, I'm reminded of the di difference between Chinese TikTok and American TikTok here, right? So apparently if you look at China's TikTok for kids, it's like, productive stuff right it's like science experiments and like random you know stuff and if you look at america's tiktoks it's like kids doing crazy dancing and like trying to get attention and obviously i'm not saying hey we need to be you know uh control everything and blah 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 but i i do think especially for children and social media and advertisement and their use of the online world we've been way too lax and we need to realize just like cigarettes, just like, you know, movies or, you know, whatever, there, there has to be some regulation, especially for our young, younger generation on what they can kind of access and see, and especially on social media platforms. And we've done a terrible, terrible, terrible job of that. And I think that's one step where regulation makes a lot of sense and you know, bringing that in makes a lot of sense. That doesn't solve the attention problem, especially with adults. 
but it also increases a, a little bit of awareness as well as if you know that your kids probably shouldn't spend all this time. And then the other thing I think in regulation, and I get it, capitalism, we don't like regulation. I get that, understand it. But there is, is as we move into kind of an AI world where, you know, the targeting could be 10x. So I'll give you the uh, example. You know, the targeting is, is kind of okay for advertisements now, but there's still some kind of funniness about it. You know, you buy something. I'll give you an example. I get targeted all the time on my own book. Why? Because you refresh your sales rank too much. Yeah, right? Because they're like, oh, this guy must, he never buys it, but he always looks at it. Um, but like, that's kind of a funny laughing thing about it. But as the AI systems get better and better and more targeted and, and data, you know, to know me essentially better than I know myself, I think there's got to be some sort of regulation around that, 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 that needs to occur. I'm not sure what it's, what it looks like, but I think we need something. Yeah. I'll say real quick. I, um, I'm wrong. So the surgeon general's warning on cigarette smoking came a hundred years after cigarettes became popular. And prior to that warning in 1963, this is nuts, but Per capita cigarette consumption in America was 4,335. So I'm going to do some quick mental math. If you just assume that every American adult smoked, which back then wasn't every, but a lot did, because again, the harms were invisible. What's 365 times 10? It's like 14 cigarettes, 13 cigarettes a day. And it took us that long before we could even get a little thing on the package that says that these are bad for you or these have this potential, whatever the software was in 1965. So I only bring that back up because one, I, I don't like to be wrong about facts. And number two, we moved really slow on that. And um, I think it just goes to show when there's a new technology with very visible benefits, but very hidden costs, we tend to move slow. And the quicker we can unearth those costs and call them what they are, the better. And then to your other point about regulations, you know, I got young kids and I constantly think like this is the world that they're going to be growing up in. And I kind of do have this fantasy, like, you know, I got, got another book in the pipeline, maybe one more, maybe I'll just take like 40 and 50 to just run for local school board as a single issue candidate. I feel like I've said this on the podcast before and my single issue would be like attention economy. And, and in particular for that age group, social media or whatever the new thing will be then. And not to run with the answers, not to say we need to ban it, not to say that the school needs to be in charge, but simply like we need to consider it because right now it's not even a part of the conversation. And to me, you know, I think what you said about the difference between how China treats TikTok in America, that sums up everything, man. Like these are savvy geopolitical chess players. And China probably sees TikTok as like their most potent weapon of war because they can control what their youth sees and feed their youth really like meaningful, good educational content. And by the way, they recently capped TikTok at 40 minutes a day for Chinese children. And then in America, they can make sure that the algorithm shows us the pits of the pits of the pits of just cheap candy that tastes really freaking good when you eat it, but ultimately rots your brain and makes you sick. And I know I sound like my parents did with video games. And I hope I'm, I hope I'm like wrong. And I hope this turns out to be just as harmless as video games. But I think for all the reasons that we discussed, it's significantly different than video games because video games you turn off and you go live your real life and the attention economy is increasingly pulling us in to that being your real life. I'm reminded here of our good friend, Stu McMillan. We had him on the podcast a few times, phenomenal coach who said that, you know, his generation and our generation phones were a big distraction from life. 
in this young generation, it's like life is a distraction from their phone. Mm. So again, if you look at this purely from a, if the only thing I care about optimizing for in my spreadsheet is profit, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to continue to get people to spend their time, energy, and attention, that is to say their lives, in the areas where it's easiest to sell them what I'm selling. And what are those areas? It's websites loading and social media. So it will become life, if not already is becoming life. And that's why I think that we very seriously need to consider the detrimental effects and have some sort of framework for thinking about it. And whether it's a regulatory policy at the family level, a la parents deciding, whether it's the community level, which is ultimately where I think it should be, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt speaks really eloquently about this, that if you just tell your one kid that they can't be on their phone and all their friends are, then they're just going to be isolated and left out. So I think it's got to be a community thing. But maybe it's the state or federal level too. I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade. But smart people need to be talking about this because the harm is real. So that's what I got, Steve. All right. There you go. The harm is real. We're all doomed. Things are going bad. No, I'm just, I'm just, don't get it. No, man, we live in this world and we got to keep hope and um, we can't be broken people if we want to fix a broken world. And, um, you know, as, as mature adults with developed prefrontal cortices, I think our job is to not only be aware of all this, but start making decisions about how you use your technologies. So, who are you going to follow on social media? Who are you going to unfollow on social media? Do you take the extra time to turn off the cookies on a website? If you're like me and you're lazy, and I really do this, do you about once a month just pick the most random thing and Google it and click on a bunch of websites for five minutes so that it throws the advertisers off? So like currently I'm getting fed all kinds of like iguanas and iguana like pet food. Because after I listen to Ezra Klein podcast, I'm like, shit, I don't want them to know what I'm into. So I just spent like 10 minutes looking at pictures of iguanas and clicking on like, you know, exotic animal websites. Now, to your point, Steve, the AI is going to get really good and figure out that like I don't actually want a pet iguana. But for now, I'll take my pet iguanas. Um, So I kind of say that in jest, but like, really, when you know that this stuff is happening, name it, be aware of it. Try not to let yourself become amused to death. And then in your communities, particularly I'm biased because I, I can't help now but look at this. It's so cliche, but it's true through the lens of being a parent. Like make this an issue in your communities that y'all discuss and wrestle with together and ideally come up with frameworks for thinking about. Um, and then try to support independent creatives like us that don't rely on advertising dollars. I mean, this, if we're going to make the hard sell, like this is it, you heard it. Um, and this is to a large degree why we don't, I mean, it, it is the main reason we believe that our books are valuable and you could argue like this podcast is an advertisement for our books, but if you're a regular listener, you'll know it's so much more. And, um, we don't want it to be polluted by weird incentives. And even if we could be staunch and not being, swayed by those weird incentives. We don't want to interrupt important conversations to sell you sugar water. We're just trying to get you to read some books that are good stuff with no ads. So that's it. You know, you may hate us, but we are consistent. (laughs) That's right. Um, All right. I hope you don't hate us if you're listening to our podcast. I don't think you hate us. If you made it this far, you probably love us. We'll we'll end it there. Steve. One of or hate me, depending on your your viewpoint. So, um, so if you're listening, you like one of us at least. Um, you know, I would add all that. Uh, I would all add all that is really good stuff. Um, the other thing I'd say is, is as Brad said, there is just you know on social media, be deliberate on what you use it for. Now, I would also say is like. And I've had to work really hard on this is like, don't feed the troll. Like, don't feed the thing that is, is, is going outraged because of the attention economy. 
I just, if I see someone lose their mind on the internet, I generally will just mute them. And when I say mute, you know, lose their mind on the internet, it's clear that like they're going for clicks and likes and all that stuff. And even, you know, friends who have gone that route, I just kind of mute them and be like, okay, I'm not going to feed into this. I'm not going to get outraged by this. I'm just going to play my own game and not incentivize the the crazy. So, yeah, I, th- I think, I think that's it. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't incentivize the crazy. Sometimes I just like, yeah, I don't even know what the right word is. I hope it's not feeding it. But when people are like, just clearly not in good faith trolling me, I'll respond by being like, wow, like that was so kind. Are you always this kind to strangers on the internet? And then they generally don't say anything else. You know who does a really good job of this? He's someone that we've poked at for uh, some of his messaging that we don't agree with. But um, Jocko, Jocko Willink is great at this. So people will like throw shade at Jocko. And he just responds, cool, period. And that shuts him up. So, you know, I think that he's on to something there. Um, and then to Steve's point, I think the best thing that you can do is just that that block or, or mute button, especially if it's your friend, like because the internet and real life are kind of combined. Like I have some people that it would be kind of weird if I randomly unfollowed them, but they drive me nuts. So I just hit mute. And it's not even like they drive me nuts, like in, in bad ways. It's just like, I don't want to see pictures of your sandwich. So now every, all my friends that post pictures of their sandwiches that are listening are going to know I'm, I'm talking about you and I love you, but I don't, I don't really want to see pictures of your sandwiches. It's not why I use social media. If that's why you use social media, great. All right. So the key is I need to start posting lots of pictures of my sandwiches. So Brad will, uh, will mute me. No, man. Yeah. I just want you to respond to one of my text messages of me yeah. mailing a good lift. Hashtag ride out strong. Just one. <laughs> Never. Can't give you the validation. So can't give you the validation. You know, I never send you pictures of me nailing a good run because I don't have my phone out on the track or, or course. So, you know. You know why I have my phone? It's actually, it's something, you know, Coach Zach, if you're listening... That, yes, I get it. He's got no, but it's not, it, it is. It's a conversation I have with him often too. Like I'll only now use my phone. He used to want me to take videos of like all my movements because he's yeah. he's neurotic. It's probably why we get along. But now I I've made a deal with him where I only take images if the RPE is above an eight, um, because that's how he gives me feedback. And I'm still I'm not I'm not an elitist like you. I never ran a four minute mile. I wasn't you know I didn't come out of the womb with a perfect foot strike. My form's gnarly. I need that coaching. That's okay. I understand it. I'm not hating. I'm just, you know. You know, you can hit like, though. All you got to do when I text you this stuff, Steve, is you just tap the video twice and a heart shows up. That's all all you got to do. Maybe maybe I'll give you some love to make you feel good. All right, y'all. Well, that's all we got. Um, Thanks for listening. Again, we hope you enjoy the show. If you haven't yet, please grab our books, audio, hard copy, um, doesn't matter to us. We just think they're really valuable. And, and if you like this, we go really deep on all these topics and more. Tell your friends, your family about the show, and uh, we'll catch you next Wednesday. So with that, um, control your attention so it doesn't control you, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>